Love Talk Radio. Okay, Brother John, you ready? We're going in. Yes, sir. All right. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. We got a good one tonight. A Look at the End by Derek Prince. This message is entitled Glimpses of the End. I want to just give you one proclamation, which is in Psalm 118, verse 17. The psalmist says, I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. And that can save you from death. Do you know that? It's a decision you can make. And I'd like to suggest that you say that with me tonight. And if there's a dark spirit of death hovering over you, dispel it. Why should you die when you can live? So, Ruth and I will say it the first time, and then we'll give you the privilege of sharing it with us. I I shall shall not die, die, but live, and and declare the works works of the Lord. Now, I think if you're going to say that, you should stand up. You can't really say it effectively in a sitting position. Now, say it with real conviction. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Now do one more thing. Find some suitable person standing near you. Look them right in the face and say it again. I shall not die. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. So you may be seated if you can. Now I want to say a big thank you to all of you who have made us welcome and responded so wonderfully to the teaching that the Lord has given me, especially to the leadership of Barnabas Camp, which has been so gracious and so loving and so respectful. Also to Julian and his worship team, I think they've done a wonderful job, I'm grateful to them. And then for the many unnamed heroes who've done all the dull and probably dirty jobs that have to be done, we want to say whether we know you by name or not, we honor you and we thank God for you. May may God bless you. This coming week I'm due to be expert with a group of primarily Christian workers and the theme the Lord has put in my heart is one we've just been touching on here it's holiness and I'm going to spend a whole week if the Lord permits dealing with this theme of holiness which I've never dealt with in depth before but I felt the Lord I should be reserving this for next week but I can say it again the uh, 
the motto of our ministry is reaching the unreached and teaching the untaught. And that is the passion that has motivated us. And in the space of the years that Ruth and I have been married, we've started from very little and basically we've reached the globe. I'm not saying that to boast, I'm just saying that as an objective fact. My radio broadcast which you hear in Ireland and other places is now in at least 12 languages, four Chinese dialects, or four languages of China, Russian, Arabic, Spanish, and a lot of other languages. So basically, potentially, we reach more than a billion people every day. Our printed material and our cassettes reach every continent. I used to have to say there's one continent we don't reach that is Antarctica. But some little while back, South Africa sent a geological exploratory expedition to Antarctica. And the people on the expedition asked if they could have some of my videotapes to watch. So now we're reaching Antarctica. <laughs> so that's all just by way of introduction. Now I want to tell you that my theme tonight is the last days or the end time. Both phrases are widely used in the scripture. I suppose that at least half of the books in the Bible have something to say about this special period, the last days or the end time. And I personally believe we're living in the end time. I know a lot of other preachers believe the same. I wouldn't try to say how close we are to the end, but I think we're in the end time. And Paul has something to say about this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 I want to read the first five verses 1 Timothy chapter 3 beginning at verse 1 but know this that in the last days perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves lovers of money boasters, proud, blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful, unholy unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. The Bible always goes to the root of things. Paul is very emphatic, first of all, I don't think in any other place he uses such emphasis. Know this. You can be absolutely certain of this one thing. That in the last days perilous times will come. The word that's translated perilous only occurs one other place in the Greek New Testament. In Matthew 8.28 it's used to describe two demonized men who came against Jesus. And the translation there in this version is fierce. And I think fierce is a good word. In the last days there will be fierce times. And much of the power that makes them fierce will be demonic power. 
And Paul says, you've just got to accept this fact, there's no doubting or disputing, that's what you're going to have in the last days. The world is not getting better. And then the Bible reveals to us the root problem. And this is so important because all sorts of political theories could be evolved, but they wouldn't touch the root. The root of the decline is the decline in human character. That is the root problem, that human character is declining. The decline in human character is a matter of corruption. Since man fell into sin, he has been corrupt. His character has been corrupt. But corruption is something that progresses. In the natural, if you think of, say, a piece of fruit, a pear, something like that, a peach, you have this beautiful, fresh-looking, lovely, tasty piece of fruit. You don't have to do anything with it, just leave it. Because beneath the surface, corruption is already at work. And it will gradually work out until that piece of fruit is totally rotten. That's how it is with human behavior. The corruption is already at work. And it's going to go on until the whole thing is totally rotten. Corruption is irreversible. There is no way to turn back the process of corruption. Whether, whether it be in character, or whether it be in fruit, or whether it be in some other thing. So God does not try to reverse the process of corruption. God's answer is not to improve, or clean up, or reform. God has one simple answer. It's a new creation. Amen. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. God is not going to patch up the old creation. He's not going to reform it. He's not going to send it to church or teach it the golden rule. Because you cannot change corruption. You can delay corruption. You take that piece of fruit, whatever it is, and put it inside the refrigerator. Corruption will be delayed. But it will still ultimately work out. Sometimes I think some churches are like that. They are refrigerators. They are pretty cold. They are pretty nice. But they don't change the process of corruption. The only thing that can do that is the new creation. I wonder how many of you tonight can say, I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. If you can't, you are still the slave of corruption at working in you. Now, associated with this revelation is an understanding of the main evil forces that are at work. And there are three of them. And each of them begins with the word love. Now I have to say the NIV, which in some ways is a good translation, unfortunately does not translate the first word self-love. It translates it egotism, which is alright. If you know Latin, it means the same thing, but a lot of people don't know Latin. And, uh, and the, in the Greek 
original text, there are three phrases that are just exactly parallel. Self-love, love of money, and love of pleasure. There are three loves that are the corrupting force at work. Let me give you them again. Love of self, love of money, and love of pleasure. When Paul gives the list, he starts with, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. And he ends the list with lovers of pleasure. And altogether there are 18 different forms of moral corruption listed. But the, the source of them is the first two. Love of self and love of money. And the love of self and money ultimately expresses itself in the love of pleasure. I'll give myself a good time, I'll get as much as I can, I'll enjoy myself, I won't worry about other people, I'll just care for number one. Those are the three corrupting forces that are at work. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul says, the love of money is the root of all evil. So all the other evils that are listed here, these moral blemishes, proceed out of the love of money. And let me say this about love of money. It's very common in the church. And if you love money, you're a slave of money. You cannot love money without becoming its slave. And so we have the exposure from the word of God of the three corrupting primary forces, love of self, love of money, love of pleasure. And you look at our culture today in this country and in many other countries, and what you see is love of self, love of money, love of pleasure. And that is the root problem. And nothing can resolve that but a new creation. You could say this, Paul says it, the love of money is a root of all evils. But the soil in which that root grows is love of self. That's the real basic problem is love of self. And that is very little dealt with in the contemporary church. In fact, much of the activities of the contemporary church are designed to increase our love of self, to feed the love of self, to nourish the love of self. Now, the shocking thing in what I'm saying is this. These terrible moral blemishes, beginning with the love of self, the love of money, and ending with the love of pleasure, with all these horrible other things in the middle of it, like unforgiving, unloving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, etc. Now listen, these same people have a form of godliness but deny its power. So Paul is not talking about irreligious people. In fact, I don't think he's talking about non-Christian people. Because as far as I understand Paul, he would never use the word godliness of anything that rejected Jesus Christ. So these are professing Christians. They have a form of godliness. But what do they do? They deny its power. What is the power? 
Well, some of you will tell me it's speaking in tongues. I thank God for speaking in tongues. Some will say, well, it's miracles and healings. I thank God for all of them. I've seen them all myself. But listen, all of those can happily coexist with the love of self. I've been Pentecostal longer than most of you have been alive. And I well know all about Pentecostals. I thank God for them. They led me to the Lord. In fact, I didn't even know you could be a Christian without speaking in tongues. It was a shock to me when I discovered. And I've spoken in tongues, I think, every day from then until now. But the, but the, the, the power that deals with self-love is not speaking in tongues. It's not miracles. It's not healing. It's not prophecy. What is it? It's the cross. And nothing else but the cross applied in our lives can deal with self-love. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul speaks about the cross. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But, unto, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God. Nothing else can deal with self-love in our lives except the cross of Jesus Christ applied. You can have a form of godliness and speak in tongues. You can believe in miracles and have a form of godliness. But one thing you cannot have is a form of godliness and the crucifixion of self. That's the dividing line. I have to say I mix mainly with charismatics. That's just the way I, my, my lot falls. I've mixed with Charismatics and Pentecostals for more than 50 years. I've ministered in about 50 different nations. And I have to tell you, some Pentecostals and some Charismatics are the most self-centered people you could meet in. And it's this religiosity that makes them self-centered. It doesn't save them. It entraps them. I want to turn to two passages where Jesus speaks about the cross. Matthew 16. Verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, but the Greek says soul, will lose it. And whoever loses his soul for my sake will find it. So Jesus said, if you want to follow me, that is, be my disciple. Because that was the specific phrase used of a disciple. A disciple was one who followed after Jesus. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow after me, there are two essential preliminary steps. Number one, you deny yourself. 
What does it mean to deny yourself? It means to deal with that insistent, self-pleasing, self-asserting ego in each one of us. The thing that says, I want, I think, I feel, I am important, pay attention to me, I matter. And you have to say, you don't matter. You're not important. It's God that's important. I deny you. I will not listen to you. I will not succumb to you. I will not bow to your demands. You don't dictate to me. You don't control my life. You selfish creature. And then Jesus says, deny himself. That's the first step. The second one is, take up the cross. And after that, he says, follow me. You cannot follow Jesus unless you've taken those first two steps. It's impossible. Some people think, well, it's pretty difficult, but I believe I'm managing. They're not. The first step is deny yourself. Say no to your insistent, demanding, self-centered ego. And the second step is take up your cross. What is your cross? It's the place where you die. God says, you have to take it up. I will not impose it on you. But if you wish to take it up, then that's the place where you die. Where the ego comes to an end. You don't become a non-person, but you become a new person, a different person. This is your decision. Are you willing to follow Jesus? Will you deny yourself? Will you say no? Will you take up your cross? Somebody said, your cross is the place where your will and God's will cross. And every one of us comes to that place. And that's where we make a decision. Whose will? God's will or my will? There's no other way. Jesus didn't offer us a second alternative. He said, if you want to follow me, come after me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. Once you're willing, God will arrange it, believe me. He'll have, he has a special cross for each one of us. A special area of our lives where we have to say, not my will, but yours be done. After that, you can follow him. Let me say that Jesus did not come to make church members. He said, go and make disciples. And disciple is one who's met these conditions. Denied himself, taken up his cross. And then in Luke 14, we get a similar passage. Luke chapter 14, verses 25, 26 and 27. Luke 14, 25. And great multitudes went with him. I want you to notice as we read on, Jesus wasn't really interested in those who went with him. He was interested in those who came after him. And there are lots of people in the charismatic movement and in the whole church that are going with Jesus. But they're not following him. Great multitudes went with him. It was exciting. It was enjoyable. It was no sacrifice to go with Jesus. Great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, anyone, 
and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own soul also, he cannot be my disciple. Some of us think it's pretty difficult, but I managed. Jesus said, you can't do it. Now what does it mean to hate your father and mother? We have to understand it in the context. You have to hate your own soul. In other words, you have to hate anything that comes between you and wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, it is hateful. Not that the person himself is hateful. You may have the sweetest and most loving parents. But there comes a point in your life when you have to decide, am I going to do what my parents want? Or am I going to do what Jesus wants? Hallelujah. I came to that place when I came out of the British Army in 1945. Uh, I was in the Middle East. I'd been there four years in the Army. The British Army owed me a passage back to England. It wasn't going to cost me anything. But God had told me to marry a lady in Jerusalem, and I had become the father of eight fatherless girls. And then I heard the news that my father, my grandfather, was dying of cancer. He was really the closest member of my family to me in many ways. And I could have a free passage home. I could have gone to see him, but not done that and obeyed the Lord. So, in a way, rightly understood, I had to hate my grandfather. I thank God the hatred is not permanent. One day I'll meet him in heaven. But Jesus has laid down certain conditions which never vary. Let's go on with this passage. Great multitudes went with him. I want you to notice. There's those who go with him and those who follow him. They're two completely different kinds of people. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The conditions of discipleship are stated as clearly as anybody could ever state them. We have no reason to doubt what they are. We have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, hate anything that comes between us and obedience to Jesus, and then we can follow him. You may be trying to follow Jesus without meeting the conditions. You can't do it. You'll experience all sorts of frustrations and defeats, and you may not even understand why. You say, well, I'm sincerely trying to live the Christian life. Well, that's good but you haven't met the conditions. There are no exceptions to these conditions. If you want to be a victorious Christian, these are the conditions. And they're absolutely contrary to the spirit of this age. Because this spirit, the spirit of this age is a spirit of self-love, of self-pleasing. And we have to decide. I've been shocked because in a certain situation, which I don't need to describe, I came up against the effects of contemporary educational system in this country in a young person. 
And I discovered that the emphasis now is on cultivating yourself, pleasing yourself, becoming the right kind of individual. There is no emphasis now on self-denial or even on discipline. You do what you feel like, do what feels good, be free, cultivate yourself. The problem is the self you're cultivating is a rebel. The more you cultivate yourself, the more rebellious you become. I learned with shock, I read a secular magazine and uh, this was in the United States, a woman who was an educationist was saying that one of the things the feminist movement has done is to affirm that excellence is something men impose upon us. Therefore we don't want excellence. If you don't want excellence, it's pretty easy not to achieve it. And we are producing generation of young people that don't know what excellence is. There are some wonderful exceptions. But they're coming into life lame as they're being misguided as to what the real key to success is. I want to go back to Second Timothy now and just pinpoint a few further features of this present age in which we are living. Second Timothy chapter 3. Incidentally, it says about those who have a form of godliness but deny its power, from such people turn away. My interpretation of that is don't waste time on people who are not willing to be serious with God. Yes, amen. I'm not interested in ministering to people who are not willing to change. Amen. I mean, I may do it, but I don't do it intentionally. I think, I think it's a waste of time. I think what Paul was saying is don't waste your time on people who are not willing to change. And I believe that applies to many ministers here today. You are wasting time on people who are only playing religion. And they'll take as much of your time as you like. The more you counsel them, the more time you give them, the more you feed the ego in them. But you're not accomplishing anything. And it's a subtle trap of Satan because there are others in whom it is worthwhile investing your time and you're being sidetracked from them to the person with the perennial problems. You never have any of those in your church, I'm sure. You know why they have perennial problems? Because they're not willing to meet God's conditions. Don't waste time on them. That's what Paul says in the Prince Version. <laughs> now, let's notice some of the other features of this time. We go to Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and it speaks about the Egyptian magicians, Janis and Jamris. You might not know who they were, but they were the magicians of Egypt. And it says, as Janis and Jamris resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. So there's going to be opposition from the occult. The magicians were occult practitioners. And in Germany at least there are far more occult practitioners than there are Christian ministers today. It's not an old thing that's passed away. It's very 
contemporary, it's very up-to-date. And these magicians were not to be laughed at. It, it, it staggered my mind, but they, of the first three miracles that Moses and Aaron could perform, they could do the same. Aaron threw down his rod and it became a serpent. Pharaoh said, what about you boys, can you do that? They said, yes, sure we can. They threw down their rods and they became snakes. Now if that happened in a charismatic church, people would pay a lot of attention. The exciting thing is, you know what happened? Aaron's rod ate up the snakes of the magicians. So, picture those magicians leaving, they left empty handed. <laughs> Whereas Aaron left with a rod that was thicker and stronger than the one he ever had before. But don't be under many, any misapprehension. The occult can produce various kinds of miracles. The ability to produce miracles is not a guarantee that a person is from God. Then after that, Moses was told to draw water out of the Nile and turn it into blood. It turned into blood. Pharaoh said to the, his magicians, can you boys do that? They said, sure, we can do that. And then Moses was told to call frogs out, out of the river. And he did it. And Pharaoh said, what about you boys? Can you do that? They said, sure, we can. The frogs came up for them too. They got to a point where Moses could do something they couldn't do. And then the magician said, this is the finger of God. And you need to know that we are in a conflict with occult powers and protection. If you're not prepared for that, you're going to run into trouble. And this battle is not being fought on, on the fields of theology, but on the demonstration of spiritual power. Do you have that power? Is it demonstrated in your life and ministry? Can you outdo the magicians? Because that's what it has to come to. And then a little further on, in 2 Timothy 3 verse 13, Paul says that evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. They deceive because they are deceived. Nobody is so good at deceiving as the one who is himself deceived. But uh, let me offer a little comment from my studies in Greek. Evil men and impostors is not the right translation. The word in, uh, in uh, Greek means enchanters. People who practice incantation which is one major form of exercising occult power. And so again, we're dealing with occult practitioners. Some years ago, I, I measured my life by who was my wife at the time. And it was when Lydia was still my wife. A man came to me and he announced that he was the most powerful wizard in the United States. Well, I didn't necessarily believe him, but he came to me to apologize because he got angry with me without my even knowing anything about it because I apparently hadn't paid enough attention to him somewhere. And he told me that he'd put a curse on my family. Well, that was useful information and I decided to deal with it but not deal with him. But then 
he went on, he was one of these people who liked to talk about himself, and he said he's practiced various forms of the occult, including telekinesis, you know what that is? Moving objects at a distance. You can't get inside the room, but you have, somehow you exercise power that changes the place of something in the room. So he succeeded at that. But he said he came to the conclusion that the most powerful tool he had was incantation, which is exactly like these people. And that really taught me something. I thought if, if satanic incantation is so powerful, what about our incantation? What about when we sing in the spirit? Isn't that powerful too? But what I want to emphasize is don't write the occult office fantasy. Or it is very, very real. You go and tell some African a witch doctor has no power, he'll laugh in your face because he knows full well he does. Isn't that right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Now, we come down to the practical. What is our response to this situation? The deterioration of human character and the upsurge of the occult. And it's challenging us. And I want to give you the answer from the Bible. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16, 17. But, now we're moving into another phase. But as for you, continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. What is our resource? What can we turn to? The Holy Scripture. That's the source of our victory and our success. Hallelujah. Never get moved away from the Holy Scriptures. Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped in every good work. Now I want to say I'm glad that Paul chose to say the scripture. He could have said the word of God and later on he does. But you see the scripture is a very special something. The scripture means that which is put down in writing. God has spoken many, many words that are not put down in writing. But a certain selection of his words have been put down in writing and they are the scripture. And we can have absolute confidence in that. This is the source of our strength, our confidence. It's our salvation, it's our hope, it's our victory. It's the Scriptures. Don't ever get moved away from the Scripture. See, there's a lot of people today who are getting all sorts of revelations. I don't know whether you have them here, but we have people with what's called extra-biblical revelation. That's outside the scriptures. I, I marvel at this because, you know, I've been reading the Bible for 57 years. Studying it, preaching it. And I've only just touched the margin. I feel like a small child paddling in the margin of a vast ocean. 
There is so much more I don't know that I haven't found that's still waiting for me. Why should I go to some harebrained <laughs> preacher and get his extra biblical revelation? I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't know whether any, that applies to anybody, but <laughs> I'm just not interested. And then, having said that about the scriptures, and that's very, very crucial, Paul goes on in the next chapter, beginning at the first verse, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. That's a very solemn charge, isn't it? We're all going to face the judgment seat of Jesus. But in the light of that, I charge you. And then he comes out with three words. Preach the word. And I say to you tonight, preach the word. Don't give people your second-hand theories, your half-baked revelations, Preach the word. That's what people need. It's what can build people up. It's what can sanctify people and make them holy and convict them of sin and change their lives. Preach the word. Amen. And then he goes on, Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Tell me, as a preacher or a pastor or whatever you are, do you expect to convince, to rebuke, to exhort? Is that part of your ministry? And if you're a church-goer, do you go to church expecting to be convinced, rebuked and exhorted? Is that your idea of the Christian life? Because it's right here. Now, then Paul ends up is charged to Timothy in chapter 4 verse 5. But you, and I want to say that to each of you individually, I believe this is a charge to everyone who's in ministry here tonight. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions, you're going to have to. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Whatever your job is assigned to you by the Lord, do it and do it well. And do it thoroughly. And do it with all your heart. Paul says, do the work of an evangelist. As I understand it, Tithethi's calling was not to be an evangelist. He was a, an apostle and a pastor. But, Paul said, do the work of an evangelist. I know I'm not called to be an evangelist. I'm called to be a teacher of the scriptures. It's very clear. But when nobody else will do it, I'll do it. I can do it. I've seen hundreds of people saved under my preaching. But it's not my primary assignment. If somebody else will do it, I'll step back. But I won't let it go undone. Because people need to be saved. You know that? If they're not saved, they're lost. And the only thing that can save them is the gospel. So do the work of an evangelist. You may be the very sort of quiet, inoffensive Bible teacher. But brothers and sisters, people need to be saved. People need to be saved. 
do the work of an evangelist. I remember the first time I listened to Billy Graham, because I'd had a very personal and individual introduction to the gospel and to the Lord. And I, I understood with amazement, you can explain the gospel to people. I never th- knew you could do that. I used to tell people what happened to me, and it was all rather dramatic, and I left them wondering, well, could it happen to me too? But listening to Billy Graham night after night, I said, it can be explained. And I learned to do it. And I can still do it. And I'm happy doing it. But it's not my primary assignment. So, let me give you back the words of Paul. That you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. Whatever you're called to do, do it completely. Do it thoroughly. Do it with all your heart. Do it as unto the Lord. Now, I just want to say one more thing on this text. Preach the word. There have been in the last few years all sorts of strange things that have happened in churches. I'm not against strange things. I've been responsible for some of them myself. I'm not frightened of what's strange. In fact, I rather enjoy it, to say the truth. I get a little tired of coming to church every week and just having the same menu. But we have to be very cautious. Because some of the strange things that have been happening are not from the Holy Spirit. There's two sources of strange things. There's the Holy Spirit and there's evil spirits. And we have to know how to release the Holy Spirit and restrain the evil spirit. And the answer is, preach the word. I want to point out to you, and this I'm going to close with, is God has ordained that signs, miraculous signs, shall follow the preaching of the word. But if we don't preach the word, there's nothing for them to follow. You can have a wonderful evening feeling spiritual, getting a vision, a revelation, laying hands on people, seeing them go down under some power. But if you don't preach the word, you really don't know what's going on. Very dangerous. There's a lot of people in the charismatic movement just want experiences. They want something dramatic to happen. Well, I love the dramatic too, but I'm cautious because there's more than one source of the dramatic. There's a good source and an evil source. How can we protect ourselves and protect the people we minister to? The answer is preach the word. Never go into a thing without the word, because that's your safeguard. Let me give you just a few scriptures on this theme. Mark 16, the end of the ministry of Jesus, verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I'm committed to that. I don't know about you. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And again, it's very simple. There's no third category. You're either saved or you're condemned. Now listen, these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and recover. And they will recover. What do the signs follow? 
the preaching of the word. But if we don't preach the word, how do we know what signs we're getting? These signs will follow the preaching of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, people need the gospel. They need to know how to be saved. And then, a little further on, in Acts chapter 4, We remember there was a time when the apostles and their co-workers were forbidden to preach in the name of Jesus. And they came together and had a prayer meeting. And this is what they prayed about. In Acts 4 verse 29, they said this, Now Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So why were the, what was to bring the signs and the wonders? The preaching of the word. Preach your word that signs and wonders may be done. And then in Acts 14, This happened in Iconium when Paul and Barnabas were there on their first ministry. And it says in Acts 14 verse 3, Therefore they stayed there, that's in Iconium, a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Notice the signs and wonders were God's witness to the word that was preached. They never had signs and wonders apart from the preaching of the word. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 and following, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness. To what? To the word. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. I would say that includes the whole realm of the supernatural. Signs, wonders, gifts and healings. Why do they come? They were God's testimony to the word of salvation. Let's never get away from salvation. Everybody needs salvation. And we are called to minister to it. If we do it faithfully, God will bear testimony to that word. And then just one final thought in Luke chapter 1. This came to me when I was preaching in France only recently. Because the French translation brings out something which is obscured, really, at least by the standard English translation. These are the first two verses of Luke's Gospel. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a a narrative of those things which which are most surely believed among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. So Luke got his record from those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now unfortunately in our religious jargon the word minister has lost its real meaning. Because all it means is a servant. 
in Acts 13 it says John Mark was the servant of Paul and Barnabas. You see, the problem is with many of us, when we think of the word minister, we think about somebody standing behind the pulpit and preaching. That's not what it means. It means a servant. Some people say, do you believe in women's ministry? I certainly do. I believe in women's service. But we've got such a false picture of what it is to be a minister. You know, you have to wear a certain kind of suit and be in a certain kind of place on Sunday morning. That's nothing to do with it. Some years ago, when I was married to Ruth, let me get the, the date approximate, we went to Pakistan to preach. Had a very exciting time. I, I'd like to tell you more about it, but I can't. But anyhow, just to say that we had about 8,000 people that responded to the gospel in Pakistan. God opened a little window of opportunity. You couldn't go there and do that now. It would be impossible. But as we were immigrating through the immigration authorities, this man asked me, what is your occupation? And I thought, if I say a preacher, that's not going to sound good. Uh, if I say a Bible teacher, that's not going to sound good. So I said, I'll tell him I'm a minister. And just leave it at that. Well, after that, I noticed that he was treating me with unusual deference. I thought, what has happened? And then I realized he thought I was a minister of the United States. <laughs> but that, that showed me how false the picture is we have of the word minister. A minister is a servant. You see, when I was preaching in France, this is translated, minister of the word, serviteur de la parole, servants of the word. And I said, that's it. That's what a minister is. It's a servant of the word. Now, I would like to ask you, and I'm coming to a close, what is your view of your function in the body of Christ? Are you a servant? Or are you, quote, a minister? Are you a servant of the word? Because that's what you're called to be. Amen. That's what you're called to be. I want you to consider that question. And I want to move on to something else. I spoke about the conditions that Jesus laid down for being a disciple. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It means saying no to your own selfish demanding ego. It means laying down your plans and ambitions. It means an unreserved commitment to follow Jesus. And that is what it is to be a disciple. Now I want to give an opportunity to any here who have been confronted for the first time maybe with this challenge and you really never have laid down your life. You got, quote, saved, which is wonderful, but you're not a disciple. You're still doing your own thing, you're pleasing yourself, you're making your own plan. But tonight you've been confronted with the reality of the demands of Jesus. If any man will come after me, 
Let him deny himself, take up his cross, the place where he is to die, and follow me. And you cannot follow Jesus until you've done those two things. So tonight, just pause for a moment. Meditate on what I've said. And then, if you are prompted to make this decision here tonight, I want to take up my cross. I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life unreservedly to him. And you'd like to make that decision here tonight, then just stand to your feet wherever you are. Anybody who feels prompted to make this decision, I want to lay down my life. I want to give up my ego, my self-will. I want to follow Jesus without reservation. Let's just wait a moment or two. I think there are more that need to make that decision. God bless you. God bless you. Stand right up. Be counted. Amen. Amen. Well, those of you that have stood, I would like you to come out to the front. Stand before me here. I can't see you all because the light is such that I can only see a small portion of the auditorium. Now please be praying for this because it's a very, very important moment in the lives of people. All right, I want to lead you in a simple prayer addressed to Jesus. I want you to say the words after me. Then when you've said the prayer and said Amen, I just want you to communicate directly with Jesus. Say or do whatever he puts in your heart to do. So will you say these words after me? Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, I believe that you're the Son of God, that you died on the cross for my sins, and rose again from the dead. I turn now from sin, and pleasing myself, and doing my own thing, and I come to you, Lord Jesus, And I lay down my life before you. I give myself unreservedly to you. To become all that you want to make me. And I thank you that I believe you receive me. Because I come in simple faith. Based on your word. Thank you Lord Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now just continue to thank him and pray anything that comes to your lips in your own language. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Ambaralama Siriandalama Kabalelava Shandalamaniana. Amen. If you want to kneel down, that's that's perfectly in order. In fact, it's appropriate. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, let your anointing, we pray, come down on these people who have come forward to give their lives to you. Thank you that they heard your voice, Lord, speaking through the scriptures. They've come to obey you to submit themselves to you. We commit them to you, Lord. Will you lay your hand on each one of them right now 
in the name of Jesus. Will you put your mighty nail-pierced hand upon them in Jesus' name? And will you, will you touch them? Will you touch them, Lord? Will you anoint them? Will you release them from every bondage, from every burden, from every feather? Set them free in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, release them, deliver them. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Amen. I think it would be good if most of you were to kneel down. I'm not demanding that, but I think you'll find it. It's more real. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for each one of these. Oh, God, will you bless them? Will you bless them beyond their ability to understand? And we give you the glory and the praise, Lord Jesus, for what you're doing here tonight in this place, in these lives. We commend them to you. Will you put your hand on each one of them? May they never go out alone by themselves from this night forward. May they know the good hand of our God upon them for good. May they become channels of blessing, Lord. May they make an impact wherever they go. An impact for the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. May they be a sweet savor of his presence, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. 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 Lord. Those of you that are in, in the seats, would you just stretch your hand out and pray for these people? quietly. Invoke God's blessing upon them. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. Open your heart to him. Pour out your heart to him. In, in submission, surrender, worship. Worship him. He's worthy to be worshipped. Worship him. Give him your whole life. Give him everything you are and everything you have. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I just want to say, are there some of you here who are ministers but not servants? That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's your, it's your career. It's the fulfillment of your ambition. But you've never died a death to your own self, to your own pleasure, to your own pride. And you would like to make that commitment. I'm not going to ask you to move out of your seat. But if you want to do that, if you say, here I am, I'm a minister, but I've never been a servant. Tonight I want to take the place of a servant. Will you just stand to your feet, wherever you are? Anybody that wants to make that decision, wherever you are, say, I choose to be a servant. Amen. The highest you can ever get is to be a servant. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you would like information about further teaching resources available from Derek Prince Ministries UK, please call us and request a copy of our latest resource guide on 01462 
492-192-100. You may also visit our website at www.dpmuk.org or write to us at DPMUK, Kingsfield, Hadrian Way, Baldock, SG7 6AN. All right, Chapman Durden, you got the mic. Yeah, it was beautiful, man. You know, I, I, I love the way that man teaches, man. He talked about, uh, I don't know, how we can have the false love, man, about a lot of us around here going around here loving oneself, loving money and loving pleasure, as opposed to loving the Lord Almighty, you know, kind of a thing. And, and all I've been hearing for the last six, seven, eight, nine, twelve months is I'm a triple crown bishop. Oh, uh, I'm heavy and these kinds of things. Never heard anything about Jesus. Always, I'm heavy, I'm triple crown, and these kinds of things. God wants us to love him, devote ourselves to him, that he may bless us with what? With the signs of wonders, the gifts, so we can heal and touch those who need salvation and healing. And, 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 the, and salvation, that's what we're all about. Bring them into the Lord. There's a lot of people in that church don't know about salvation. They think because they attend church, that's salvation. Because they're very active in the church, that's salvation. No. Salvation is having a personal relationship with God's son, the Lord Jesus, and hearing his voice and being obedient and being led by the Holy Spirit. I love his teaching. God bless you. And I thank you for uh, uh, letting me know, allowing me to know uh, that he was teaching tonight. Otherwise, I'd have been doing something else. I mean, the man is powerful. And he loves the Lord. Again, appreciate it. God bless all right, God bless. Chapman Durden, close us out in prayer, please. Our Father, we give you all the praise and glory. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your precious son. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, Lord. And I just pray that all our listeners tonight would, would tend to themselves and look and don't be walking around talking about, I'm heavy. That's all I've been hearing, I'm heavy. I don't want to hear that, Lord. I pray that you would anoint them so they can understand the gospel and turn all their attention on your son Jesus, not on themselves and what they can get, the glory that they can get, but on Jesus who shared his love for each one of us. Thank you for your mercy, your love, and your grace. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we pray and agree. Amen. God bless. Have a good evening. Shalom to all of you. Welcome to my gymnasium. (laughs) Check it out. Watch this. Bring in the Yeah. 
in these services at Blog Talk Radio. If you would like to contribute to this ministry, please do so by going to our new GoFundMe site at www.livedeliverance.com and look where it says GoFundMe when you go to our site or at the lower left-hand corner when you go down, scroll down to our site and you will see a PayPal. All finances are needed for this ministry. And we thank those who've given last year and those who will be able to give this year. Happy New Year. Shalom. God bless.